Hey, good morning. So my name is Allie Krug, and this is a very tiny podcast, The Freelance Epi, and it was uh, just kind of stashed. It was geocached as a way for me to store my thoughts and explain myself when time didn't permit at a busy hockey rink. Um, and lately, I have been really, really lucky to invite to speak with me some folks who have ventured bravely into med Twitter. And so I want to introduce you to two humanities professors who I've really enjoyed getting to know. I value their perspective so much because uh, as we were just talking about pre-show, um, I've lived abroad and I really appreciate looking back on um, Americans and my, my own country and my own culture from and through the perspective of people who have uh, lived elsewhere. So I've lived in Denmark and I've lived in Japan now most recently for four years. I've invested my, my life in learning the language. So for that reason, I'm fascinated with Lilia's work in linguistics. And Liz and I spoke recently. Um, she and I both share, in addition to running, which we all share, um, we also share uh, being hockey moms together. So without further ado, I will attempt to introduce the two of you without um, messing up too bad. So Lilia Glass is a um, PhD and she's at Georgia Tech. She's assistant professor of linguistics in the School of Modern Languages. Um, she earned her PhD from Stanford and you won uh, an award for excellence in teaching. And you also held a dissertation fellowship from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and the American Council for Learned Societies. Your work is completely foreign to me, I must admit, okay? <laughs> I have been uh, invested in epidemiology, health policy, and uh, education policy for a decade. And so you work on lexical semantics, which is word meaning. I'm really glad you explained this in your bio. <laughs> Compositional semantics, sentence meaning, pragmatics, inferences drawn in context, and sociolinguistics, how people use language in their social identity. This is fascinating. I can't even go through all the rest of it. Um, and Dr. Rohan, you and I spoke recently. Um, I, I really seized upon the fact that you have studied um, diaries, as a matter of fact. I loved that. And um, you also edited Beyond the Archives, Research as a Lived Process. You're a professor of composition and, and rhetoric, and you're currently at um, University of Michigan, uh, Dearborn, correct? Okay. And uh, your research reflects your ongoing interests in pedagogy, feminist research methods, America's progressive era, and your work has appeared in journals such as Rhetoric Review, Composition Studies, Pedagogy, Reflections, and um, several book chapters. And you edited the diaries of a historical college student, John Price. So, And he had the Spanish flu. <laughs> really? And so we, we first got to know each other because we were comparing notes on how uh, CDC messaging um, back in, I believe it was uh, the 50s and the 60s on flu. But before we launch into this, um, I wanted to let you know that as my, I started my work as a medical editor, medical writer, really doing copy editing. So typos are th something that I just cannot avoid. And a typo got me into big trouble on Twitter over the past week. But because I mute and block no one, unless you threaten my life, um, I'm really grateful because the typo allowed me to delve into um, a blind spot, quite frankly, that I had had about MISC, um, which is that uh, post-COVID sequelae, which is, uh, you obviously know, it's an inflammatory syndrome. And uh, interestingly, I had not really been focused too much on that, but um, parents who are, are very uh, nervous about COVID, um, quite fearful and really resentful of this push for normalcy, um, are concerned about the fact that we overlook MISC. So my focus has been on kids with comorbidities and protecting them, sheltering them, getting them vaccinated, keeping them out of the hospital. I've been obsessed with that. I had a blind spot about MISC because frankly, there are treatments for it. It's very rare. And um, it 
predominantly affects kids who have an asymptomatic course with COVID and were previously healthy. And so my, my blind spot was they're going to be fine. I'm really worried about the kids with comorbidities. But to be honest, I've also been obsessed with myocarditis, which is similarly rare, and it affects previously healthy kids. So I completely took on myself, you know, the responsibility to go and make it right with um, the publication Unheard. And I'm grateful for these folks um, identifying it for me. I took a, a lot of uh, I took a lot of abuse, um, some of it unwarranted. Um, but in the end, what's important is learning something new. And um, I, I really appreciate taking a deep dive in that area. So I think reading between the lines is important um, and thinking about both of your work and paying attention to language, what we say and what we don't say is really critical part of our pandemic experience. And so with that in mind, I am going to step back and allow the two of you to go at it um, with a very loose structure. We talked about um, the use of language, uh, specific words. My trigger word was novel. Um, as I mentioned pre-show, I really, uh, I've really been, a bit bothered by referring to this virus as novel. I get that uh, in virological terms, it is novel, it's new, um, but the experience of an airborne virus is not novel to humanity at all. Um, but I, I am concerned that our use of ascribing that word novel to it allows us to do things that are new, like locking down um, the entire planet um, in ways that we would not previously have considered. And I did kind of wonder out loud, if we are referring to this virus, as novel, and we spend so much time talking about it being novel as we did in those early days and invest this incredible research in it, do we then excuse ourselves from, uh, you know, uh, tripping a wire as far as public policy and doing things that we had not previously done? And then how do we roll back from that? So uh, novel is a, is a trigger word for me. We also talked about um, media and its use of uh, language around the, the pandemic and how that translates maybe into the student experience and perception or not. Uh, oddly, we adults may be layering a lot of um, trauma and baggage onto the students that they may or may not actually have. Um, so with that, I wanted to just uh, start our conversation with specific words um, that may have um, been on your mind as somewhat problematic and uh, if you don't mind, since I got to talk to Liz last time, I'm going to put Lilia on the spot and see where you'd like to take the conversation. Yeah, thank you so much, Allison, for having me. And um, thanks, Liz, for being here with me, too. It's great to talk to both of you. Um, so I think I really like what you said about the word novel and also kind of then what that was interpreted to mean. It was interesting because COVID was described as novel back in March 2020, but then also certain historical precedents were evoked in order to justify certain policy responses. So I remember back in March 2020, it was very common for people to talk about the precedent of these um, lockdowns related to the um, Spanish flu or the 1918 flu, because there were some uh, closures of events back at that time. And I remember reading some articles back in March 2020 that were arguing that some of those closures of um, events and stuff back in 1918 had positive effects on mortality. And those were kind of used as precedents for then justifying similar lockdowns for the coronavirus. Although then the interesting thing was that some of those 1918 lockdowns were only about six weeks long. And then somehow we used that precedent to start these lockdowns in March, 2020, that then went on for far longer than six weeks. And it didn't really seem like we circled back and said, well, actually the precedent was only a six week lockdown and now we're in a 50 week lockdown, you know? So um, it seemed a bit like, yeah, it was unclear exactly what precedent we were using or not using. And then I remember back at the same time, there was the same 
debate about whether coronavirus could be compared to flu. And of course, when you compare one thing to another, you are highlighting certain dimensions and ignoring others. And it's sort of unclear which dimensions are you highlighting, which dimensions are you kind of um, eliding, right? So I remember Trump was actually, he tweeted something to the effect that, oh, we, um, we don't shut down our society for the flu, so we shouldn't shut down our society for the coronavirus. And then I remember this tweet was labeled as misinformation. And it was, there was a New York Times piece at the time that said something like, uh, Trump is wrong that COVID is like flu because COVID is actually way more deadly than the flu and we don't have a vaccine for the flu. Um, which time, I mean, we have a vaccine for the flu. We don't have a vaccine for the coronavirus. Coronavirus is more deadly than flu. That was true back in March, 2020. But then it seems like now it's like, well, we actually do have a vaccine for the coronavirus. So when is it appropriate to compare it to the flu or like along what dimension or can we compare it to the 19, 1918 flu for which we had all these lockdowns? Can we compare it to the regular seasonal flu for which we don't have lockdowns, but we do have a vaccine? It seems kind of like there's a bit of shifting sands in terms of what comparisons are seen as appropriate and what comparisons can be used to establish some sort of policy precedent. That's very true. And, and you know, in, in my line of work in epidemiology, we love to stratify things. So we like to like you, you don't generally take an entire population and, and compare one overall metric for flu to uh, COVID. You would actually think about the old, the young, those with comorbidities, you know, those who are poor and have uh, difficult access to care. I mean, you, you just really carve up your uh, your data so that you can understand who is at most risk and who isn't so that you can then allocate scarce resources to helping those who are at most risk. And that's what's driving me a little bit crazy right now is it feels to me like we're spending all of this media currency capital talking about kids and masking and vaccines and mandates in schools when really there's a sizable portion of the population that is not yet vaccinated and much, much higher risk than kids. So as an epidemiologist and a public health person who cares about education, I think that we should uh, and spent a lot of time in education policy before venturing back into this. Um, through the pandemic, we really need to be normalizing education and making a really barrier-free access to learning um, and in student engagement and focus our scarce resources on intense outreach to those at most risk of dying and frankly, you know, um, needing ICU beds. So Liz, you, um, in our conversation last time, you talked about catastrophizing um, the pandemic as is, is use of language something that um, opens the door to uh, to that sort of a, a perception of how we talk about it? Yeah, I mean, like a couple of things, like mentioning the Spanish flu, comparing it to the Spanish flu, you can't compare. So I also was had, you know, my ear up for the comparison with 1918, because I, I know that period, that's sort of the period of, of my research. And so I, I know it was really devastating to young people and I did edit the diary of someone who had that flu and I knew it was in Ohio, but his family was in Chicago. Um, so, and then also a lot of young people died in the student army training corps. Uh, it was sort of this makeshift kind of ROTC program where kids were put in camps like in school. This was so they wouldn't join the fight because they were trying to keep colleges afloat. And lots of young people died in college, like 54 kids or young men died at the University of Michigan alone. So I had a project where I used some of my research and students wrote about it. And it was interesting that when they look back at some of the articles that I had them read that were like circulating at the time, their reaction was, oh, why didn't they lock down in 1918? And I said, well, they didn't have Costco or DoorDash or Amazon and they didn't have social security yet. So people couldn't just stop working. And so that was just like one example where I felt like the media 
and all of us, everybody in academia was really failing to contextualize. And then even comparing to the 1918 flu was really doing a disservice to the people who died at that time, because it's not the same. And they had very few deaths. I mean, all the doctors were out fighting the war. You know, we just didn't have a healthcare system. People yeah, were it, it is very different. Yeah, so that was, that was an example of catastrophizing. And then maybe another example would be, I felt like the New York Times was really like, putting the cart before the horse and catastrophizing it using their data. Because I think the first stories coming out were about that Kirkland nursing home. And the mm -hmm. first thing I was saying, you know, to, and, you know, my mom was having kind of a certain reaction because, you know, they were talking about closing schools. I don't know when it was closing schools. And we we're saying, you know, this is happening in nursing homes, not nursery schools, you know, so there, there was already that evidence there. But then the New York Times was like counting the people who were dying, like almost anticipating it. Um, right. And then story about who was vulnerable, like the actual narrative was, was there, but then it was, they were counting the people who were dying, but not putting it in context. And that really started to get me really skeptical about the New York times, which I read my whole adult life every morning. And honestly, I have, I have the subscription free two places. <laughs> I can't open that paper anymore. I, I just, I, I felt like the tone was really irresponsible. Yeah. So, so then I started to just, that's what led me to Twitter. I'm like, I just want to look at the raw data. I want to listen to the scientists. I want to hear the primary source. This filtering of the information just, it was really too high. It was really being spun. And I don't know why I was political. Um, uh, yeah, so I had a I had trouble uh, early on as well. My um, professor and longtime mentor and very good friend actually wrote a piece that she wanted to get published in the New York Times because she was thinking as uh, you know public health um, epidemiologists do, like I said, about risk stratification and what can we possibly do to avert the the crisis that she knew was happening in the nursing homes. And this was back in March, so I helped her write it. And uh, we pitched it to several outlets and it wasn't picked up, but she had some very creative ideas about how to surge staffing into the nursing homes, which um, frankly is, I hadn't been working in, in this area for quite some time and been doing other kind of work. So I wasn't really thinking about strategic interventions that would reduce morbidity and mortality in nursing homes, but that's her area of expertise. And surging staff allows you to not have people moving between uh, units in a nursing home. You would cohort your staff and cohort your patients so you don't have virus. So, I mean, obviously it was something that we could have done, should have done. She uh, works extensively with students, um, foreign students in the U.S., so she knows about their credentials. She knows there's clinical people here in the U.S. Um, and would probably have been quite happy to be part of a surge workforce, but it, it didn't get picked up by the Times. I wrote to them at the same time about the stigmatization of people who were falling ill with, with COVID. But way back then, remember, it was like quite a thing to actually go positive. Um, and it was, you know, then if you uh, were sick and hospitalized, they were actually sharing people's names. And uh, then they would share uh, at a press conference what their comorbidities were. And I found that that was like, really, uh, that was shocking to me. You just don't do that. You don't talk about that. I mean, we all, of course, want to know, okay, this person got really sick. Uh, how does that relate to me? How can I contextualize my own risk in, in terms of what this person went through? And so, you know, people would understandably, you know, maybe breathe a sigh of relief that this person uh, who fell gravely ill had a, a risk factor that, that you don't have. Um, it makes you feel a little bit safer. So I can understand that desperate desire to understand and contextualize but it's still inappropriate. So I wrote a whole piece on stigma 
um, and how we could talk about, you know, the pandemic and the experience and provide people with reassurance and, um, you know, common sense ways to keep your household safe, but without doing that to people. Um, but it didn't get picked up. It was all fear. So anyway, I, I can appreciate where you're, you're coming from, Liz. Lelia, what thoughts do you have on, uh, on the early days or, or as we're segueing into, gosh, it's been two years now. We're now in our third year um, of this. And we were talking pre-show about Georgia Tech doesn't require masks and um, people are allowed to make their own choices. Um, and interestingly, you were mentioning that the students, uh, you know, COVID is not a huge topic of conversation, it doesn't seem. Yeah, yeah. Well, so um, yes. So I'm happy to also circle back and talk more about like language stuff too. But um, in terms of students, Please. so I, I will say, um, so to first start with your question about students. Yeah, I mean, so my school um, is mask recommended uh, not mask required and um, students though do largely wear masks at least the students that I teach in my own classes I would say um, about 90% in one of my classes and then about 99% in another class and um, I don't know exactly so I haven't raised this as a topic in my class because I want to keep my classroom as kind of like a uh, an apolitical space obviously I tweet my own thoughts but I don't really talk about that stuff in the classroom because I want all students of all affiliations and ideologies to feel welcome there. Um, I don't teach in a mask and I'm not the only one. Other people have told me that they also don't teach in a mask. Um, I haven't really explained why not to the students, but it's partly because um, I don't really, um, I don't really understand why public officials can speak from a podium without a mask. Whereas somehow instructors would be expected to, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, also the kind of lack of off ramp and clear goal for the masks um, bothers me a little bit too. So that's why I haven't been wearing one. Um, but I will say, yeah, so I've been doing some uh, a, a project about accents. I interview students. One of my questions is just how has the coronavirus pandemic and response affected you? Just because it's an interesting thing to hear about in these interviews. And a lot of students um, are actually don't really seem to go on about that very much sometimes they're just kind of like yeah you know online learning sucked it sucked to not see my friends for a while but you know it's a little better now and they don't actually at least of the ones I've interviewed they don't all seem to have that much like trauma that they want to unburden at least in that context I know one student did kind of talk about how she had gotten in some beef with a roommate about you know what you know whether one of them was going to parties and making the other one exposed or something so obviously there's a few like interpersonal conflicts that can arise from COVID stuff but um I think the students haven't at least as far as I've seen from the students that I've talked to in those interviews they didn't seem to go on about it the way actually maybe I would have if you would ask me, you know, um, which is kind of interesting. I, I did also do a survey of students, a Qualtrics survey of students in fall 2021 and asked them how they were doing. And I actually found pretty mixed responses in terms of their views of online learning versus in-person learning. Like there was a contingent of students who really wanted stuff to be in person. There was a contingent of students who were angry that our school had kind of said that we were going to be a little more in person than we ultimately ended up being, who felt a bit kind of lied to. Um, which I respect. And then there was also a contingent of students who actually didn't mind online learning. Um, and then some of them preferred synchronous, some of them preferred asynchronous. I think the students in different time zones preferred asynchronous because it's easier. The students who actually kind of like having some structure to their day preferred synchronous because otherwise your day just becomes a whole like undifferentiated blob. Students did say it was kind of um, just lonely to sit in your room all the time and just do a virtual school. But I mean, some students actually seem to find a way to kind of 
um, make it work for them. So I don't want to homogenize their experiences when they actually had pretty diverse experiences and perspectives. Right. I appreciate that. And you know what? Uh, while I have the privilege of both of you here, let's, let's do go back to language. Um, so can, would you like to, I know this is a, you know, a expansive question. I don't even really know where to start, but could you explain what, um, some of the things like sentence meaning and word meaning, um, are to me and maybe if possible, put it in the context of what you're reading on Twitter or things that make you laugh through your lens on Twitter <laughs> or yeah. because we would be seeing that in common and, um, your perspective might be, uh, give me a window on what those, those mean. Right. So I guess one thing that's a big theme of my research is kind of what we know about the real world that language describes. Right. So um, we understand what words mean, but then we also map what we know about what words mean onto our rich knowledge of how the world works. And we draw all these kind of inferences about the situation that's being described. And then I think so I got interested in this in the realm of coronavirus for a few different reasons. I thought of a few different examples where I thought people were maybe a bit talking past each other. Um, in public discourse about coronavirus for reasons that are kind of rooted in what we are thinking words mean or what we're thinking about the situations they describe. So this, um, people don't really use the phrase flatten the curve anymore. It kind of got phased out. But at the beginning, um, we were talking a lot about how we should flatten the curve. And there was that illustration from The Economist that was being circulated where it showed, um, it had the x-axis was time, but it had no units or labels really, it just was time. And then the y-axis I believe was, um, like how many people have the, or how many people get the coronavirus or something like that. And mm -hmm. then it was kind of showing two different alternatives, one where the coronavirus spikes and then um, falls quickly, but it spikes really high and it exceeds hospital capacity. And then another curve showing a, 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 like a smoother curve where it goes up a little bit more slowly and then comes down a little bit more slowly and it never exceeds the hospital capacity. And that was supposed to be the idea that we ought to flatten the curve. But then you could also imagine flattening the curve well, okay, so then it's like, did we succeed? Like, I don't know, it's hard to know if we succeeded or not because we don't really, I mean, no one really came out and said, good job, we all succeeded, we flattened the curve, but maybe we kind of did. It's hard to know because, um, I mean, was our curve smoother than it would have counterfactually been right. if we done anything? I don't know. But then, so we never really kind of determined whether or not we had succeeded at flattening the curve, which was kind of interesting. We just eventually kind of like stopped talking about it. But then I also think that although there was that illustration of what it meant, there was also another thing that it could have meant maybe, which was the idea um, of the way, for example, if you look at curves of like polio in the United States, where there's a lot of polio up until the mid 20th century, and then it literally goes down to zero and remains completely flat at zero ever since then in the US um, because of the vaccines. And I think some people maybe kind of thought that the true success <laughs> of flattening the curve would be flattening the curve like that, like not just making it a bit smoother, but making it go down to zero and stay there permanently like polio. And then of course we never succeeded at that. Maybe it was unrealistic to think that we could have, but I feel like the whole discourse around flattening the curve was a bit confused about what it, what it even means, what it means to succeed. And then even if we had maybe succeeded, no one ever came out and told us that we had, instead it was just like, no, we need to keep doing it or we'll just forget about it, stop talking about it. And now we're onto some new agenda, but it, it seems like a bit of a miscommunication there related to what we know about what words mean. Yeah, yeah I think, and also, I, I think that narrative didn't really fit with the fact that this was a seasonal virus. And so I think that people who had some power uh, were, I think, censoring that conversation because you can't flatten the curve because it's the curve is different in all these different um, geographies. 
And so, and so pretending that you're right, there was a narrative about what flattening the curve was and it meant zero, but it was way more complicated. And so, you know, we said going, going back to those newspapers from 1968 that I looked at and the tone and the information was so different, but a few things that they mentioned is they admitted this was seasonality. And so they, they created a story for the readers and they said, this is gonna peak in January. So this is in New York. So this is like the Eastern Hope Simpson curve. And then they also said, this is not gonna be deadly if you're healthy. Um, if you're old and you have comorbidities, you're vulnerable. And then they also had you know, a plan you know, we're going to come out with a vaccine and then we're also going to um, find the elderly, you know, who are living together in whatever in public housing or whatever they were. Um, so I think the story was not comforting. And then also it seems that there was a manipulation going on. So is that coming from the people in power? So, you know, that's my hypothesis that there were power brokers who wanted us to think that there was going to be this zero COVID and didn't want us to compare not to be a conspiracy theorist, but all of these things, we weren't really allowed this critical thinking. And so on Twitter, you can see that, that, that tension between, hey, there's another way to think about it. And then people come in and say, no, you can't think that way, but it can't, the knowledge can't be contained. Right, um, I think you both raise really good points. I mean, my, my teen boys, uh, one of them in particular likes to know what the end point is. Like if we're going on a drive or going camping, um, which I love, he's not a huge fan and he'll sleep in the car, which you know I, I've had to pick my battles, right? At least he's camping with me, but he's like a hobo in the car. Um, he always wants to know like, when is, when is it over or what are the boundary conditions? And I, I agree with you both that we haven't really defined that very well. We haven't defined what the curve should look like. We haven't defined what previous curves look like. Um, as a matter of fact, I've been kind of a little bit obsessed with the slope of the curve um, and how the, they mirror each other. And I don't have time to read a lot of Twitter and I just, I'm really addicted to Twitter. I really love it, but I, I just don't have time to read everything that I would want to read. I have like a learning addiction, I think. Um, my older son has it too. I just feel like it's, it, it is such a privilege to be able to learn new things every day, all the time. And um, it's hard to stop learning, frankly, and do my actual work. So uh, I've been looking at the slopes of the curve and, and they, they often mirror each other. Like Omicron went straight up and straight down, right? And then the other ones, if you look at them, they kind of mirror each other. They're either slow up and slow down. Even the states seem to look uh, similar. So I've been thinking a lot about uh, acquired immunity, which is otherwise called, you know, adaptive immunity or natural immunity, not vaccine acquired. And just kind of thinking about what that might mean for the curves and, um, you know, partitioning the population into the highest risk and the least risk and how that could shape these curves um, overall. Um, because we do, we do know something now about natural immunity. We do know something about how the body responds to exposure to a virus via airborne versus, you know, injection in the, in the deltoid. Vaccines are life-saving, um, but many people have actually survived infection with COVID and done very well and actually not had reinfection and not gone to the hospital. And the CDC just published a study on that. So I do think it'll be interesting to continue to think about that. And I do hope people look at um, you know, seroprevalence maybe and the shape of the curves, seroprevalence in the population, um, and then one wave to the next and what that means. I know others are um, mathematicians far smarter than me. That's not my strong suit, to be honest with you. Um, but I, I do think that the rhetoric is really important. How we define things for people gives them a sense of uh, comfort about how long this will last. And Liz is right. We were um, swapping, you know, notes about 
um, the language that was used previously. And it just, it gave people a sense that it was somewhat understood that it wasn't entirely new. It wasn't a huge mystery. And, you know, we've seen things like this before um, and we're going to get through this. This, this experience feels different to me. This experience feels very boundless and um, indeterminate. And I think that, you know, that kind of uncertainty is tough for people. Uh, it, you may not feel yeah, I, that really bothers me. I've never liked the new normal. Did that start with COVID, by the way, or was that around before COVID? Yeah. I can't even remember. Oh, it, I think that was one of the catchphrases, the new normal. And and I think even people now still saying, oh, we're never going to go back to normal. And that is very, that's very ahistorical to mm-hmm. think that this virus is going to change us of thinking, you know, all the things that people have died from throughout the history of time and this is going to change us. Well, yeah. talk past each other because no one really is clear about what is normal. What does it mean to be what for things to be normal? Is it abnormal for people to be dying of the coronavirus? Is it abnormal to be wearing masks? Is it abnormal to have events closed and no conferences and all the, you know vaccine mandates? What what is the normal state of affairs that people are aspiring to? And I think people might be talking past each other there too because maybe. One person definition. One person's definition of normal is it's not normal for people to be dying of coronavirus, and right. then another person's definition of normal is it's not normal to be made to wear a mask. And then those people maybe they kind of both want normal, but they don't even know what they're talking about, right. and they can't. They don't know what it means for each other, you know. Right. I raised that in uh, in the last piece that I wrote with uh, Vinay Prasad, and it was such a privilege to work with him. Um, normal actually is exposure to pathogens. And that's normal. And, you know, your body's response to exposures um, is something that has evolved over millions of years, right? And that's actually the normal state of affairs. And that's how we build immunity. And so shielding and sheltering from normal routine virological, you know, bacterial exposures is not normal. And uh, my good friend, um, Dr. Bienen would say she's a veterinarian and uh, public health professional, she would say that, you know, exposures are an important part of diversity and uh, diversity in your microbiome, which is an area that I would like to learn more about and and know next to nothing about. But, you know, I think that normal entails a bit of chaos um, and it cannot be controlled. And I think that our bodies are are far more capable of responding to um, these external assaults than we might appreciate. And that was one of the ways that I dealt with my own COVID experience. Um, I tend to be a bit of a hypochondriac. I do the morning symptom report every morning because <laughs> I'm a runner. I don't know if you guys do that, but you always know like how you wake up, if you feel a tinge in the throat, you know, how do you feel like, are you a little bit sore or whatever? Um, so my family really hates the morning symptom, symptom report, <laughs> but you know, that being sensitive to how you feel and being concerned about health is a normal thing. That's okay. Um, and being worried about it is okay. I totally get that. I was really worried when I contracted COVID in fall 20 before there was vaccines or anything, um, because I'm not terribly young, um, but I am in good health. But my way through it was to completely reframe how I thought about being sick with COVID. And I remember being outside, like raking the leaves to get a little bit of uh, activity going, keep my body working, you know, that's uh, good for the immune system. And I remember thinking, you know, this is really fascinating. I am meeting the microbe. It is in me and my body is right now figuring out how to deal with this. This is actually, it was almost like a landing on the moon moment for me. I know that may sound very bizarre, but that's how I reframed the experience. So I wouldn't be worried. And I would actually just, instead of feeling nervous, I told myself, this is actually rather exciting. Um, That's how I respond to riding a a horse that I uh, was nervous about riding. It's exciting. It's not fearful. And so how we shape, I think we got, um, 
to talking about the nocebo effect and media messaging and things like that, and how that shapes a person's response to a stressful situation. How we use language in our own heads can shape our personal reaction to stressful situations. So just curious if, if you all use your own skills, um, your linguistic skills to do self-talk. Well, I think, you know, Sunetra Gupta, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name very well. She, one of the signers of the Great uh, Barrington Declaration. Mm -hmm. The way that she described something that, that similar to what you're saying really hit me in terms of problematizing the way that we were talking about COVID. She said, you know, we're treating like this is like it's other, like the virus is other. I mean, the fact that it was made in a lab, okay, maybe, yes, perhaps if it was made in a lab, but still it was made through materials that are in the universe, right? So I, that's what I thought that was strange that we were really othering the, this virus rather than thinking that it was something that our body, our immune system would be familiar with and manage. And then I noticed there was this, the same language was coming up. There was a snowstorm. Well, supposedly we had two snow days and the weather report, a couple of them was on the radio and on the TV said, don't go outside during the storm. And that seemed to be fit with this whole idea that we have to be safe from these outside forces as if we're not part of nature. Um, so I did go cross country skiing in the storm. <laughs> I was fine. <laughs> Yeah, I actually on on Vinay Prasad's podcast, he was talking to um, that like infectious disease ethicist from Oxford, and they did talk about this idea that um, actually, if you were to close the borders of every single country and never let all these pathogens in, then uh, you would never have a really good way to open up again, because then eventually each country would be kind of just like that um, that island off the coast of India, where there's that indigenous tribe that no one can interact with because there's too much danger. That well, I mean, there are, there are many reasons you can't interact with them, but one of them is that you might give them some disease that they're not immune to and it could wipe them all out. But then we don't want every human society to be as insular as that, that we can't have a global society anymore because then we'll all just be you know, scared to death of getting exposed to each other's pathogens. And so it's actually good for us to have some sort of like global transmission of pathogens around the world. Otherwise we'll all have to stay locked in our little countries forever. Right, uh, and, and that gets to the point about, you know. Um, travel and closing borders and, and things like that, you know, by the time we know that there's a new variant, uh, it's actually already here. Um, and so I know that there was a lot of pushback against that. It, it seemed a little bit nonsensical to me to, to close the borders. Um, and, and as a matter of fact, contact tracing, um, when Omicron went through our house, I did get a call um, because we had gotten a PCR positive test. I got a call from the health department. I totally appreciate the effort, but they were on the phone for 40 minutes with me contact tracing my household. When I, I could, I, I just was thinking, you know, what if that those 40 minutes were spent reaching out to people who are vaccine hesitant instead? Um, because the incubation period is actually shorter than the test resulting time. You know, it takes about 72 hours to get a test result back if you're doing a PCR, um, which we had to do because the rapid test was actually negative, um, but I, I had a strong suspicion it was COVID. So this use of resources going all the way back to the, the start of the conversation where you do risk stratification and you understand barriers to getting care and you understand specific risks for certain groups of vulnerable people, it just seems like we could have been a lot smarter all along if we had been um, careful to talk to each other. And to Liz and I talked about this before, bringing more stakeholders from various perspectives um, around the table. I know we all listen to um, a, a wide array of podcasts and have people that we greatly respect 
who have a tremendous grasp of um, public health strategy and really could have informed the pandemic response if we had spent that time, you know, having these multidisciplinary groups and learning to talk to each other. I do wonder if, if the two of you, given your experience um, and your understanding of language, have you, um, and, and Lily, I know based on your interviewing, you obviously understand how to do conversational interviewing and how to structure a conversation. Is this an area that going forward, um, as we develop public health strategy, folks like you could really help scientists better talk to each other? Is that something in your, in your area of expertise? Well, yeah, I mean, so I would say, I mean, I'm not saying that I personally should be involved in this, but I definitely yeah. think that um, people from like a diverse array of perspectives should be involved in making policies and communicating policies and that it shouldn't just be up to epidemiologists to decide how we will respond to an epidemic because it has consequences for schools, it has consequences for the economy, it has consequences for psychology, and it has consequences for citizens of a democracy. And all of those people have relevant input and I feel like it was very frustrating to feel like we had to just only listen to like medical experts. And especially early in the pandemic, whenever I would raise this, people would shut me down on the grounds that I'm not a medical expert. But actually, I don't think you need to be a medical expert to have an opinion about policies that affect every aspect of human life. And I think it would have been maybe good if both our media and our public health experts had acknowledged that and had maybe actually realized that part of what they're doing is science, but part of what they're doing is politics and ethics and weighing of priorities, and that they are no more experts on weighing priorities than any other citizen of a democracy, right? Mm -hmm. That's such a good point. I, I really think that's been utterly lost in all of this is, you know, what, how does it affect real people? And are there ways to um, mitigate the mitigations and so that they are not uh, adversely affecting people who are at very low risk? Um, that when we were responding to the um, pandemic in our hockey community, we tried to do that. Um, you know, the the instinct to hockey, the hockey world is to be very decisive and uh, adamant, and this is how things are going to go. But um, I'm very thankful that our hockey director was willing to get the other, um, the rink organization, the management, our partner rink, and then the head coaches on, on a Zoom call together and actually talk about, here's what we think, here's based on the science, here's what we think we should do. What do you think? How does this play out in the real world? How does this affect your practice? And then from there, we went to the team managers um, to get their perspective. What, how are your parents going to respond? The parents with the little kids, what will it look like for them trying to gear up at home and arrive already fully geared up and that sort of thing. And so you do all of that consensus building in advance before you push out a policy so that we actually had the resources in place to make the policy actionable. Like the hockey director went out and bought mats so that the kids could be dropped off right at the door with their skates on and not wreck their skates on the asphalt. They could literally walk in with their skates on. It's just really practical but meaningful things that communicate to your stakeholders, to your society that I heard you, I care, here's what we think is best. We've taken the time to, to research it. Here's how we think we're gonna make this work for you to keep you safe, but also keep your life going. Um, and, and provide families with that rhythm and that ability to just keep some normalcy. I hate that word. How do we, can you please, before we close today, give me a different word than normal? <laughs> but how do we keep going and providing um, people with uh, the ability to, to process this traumatic experience, but retain some of what they know um, from the previous pre-pandemic life? Well, I think in terms of communicating and the new styles of getting information and it might seem threatening to you know 20th century style thinkers and people still have power over the media 
But something interesting that came up with my students is we were we looked at this documentary that was about the 1967 Detroit riots. And it was created just through footage of home movies and some footage, you know, some published footage. And it, it, we had a really interesting conversation about, well, that is essentially how we get at truth now. You know, we watch TikTok videos and through social media, and we don't really listen to the narrator of the media. So I think this whole idea of having this narrator telling us what to do, even though people are listening to it and they're being obedient, there's a really a discomfort. It's not exactly how people get their information. It's not how they make choices. But then it's exhausting us, right? Because people are trying to find their truth and trying to find their normal. Why are your students wearing masks when they don't have to? My students have to wear a mask. They don't have a voice to complain. They can't complain to anyone. What can they do? That's not exactly how their world works in their own media, in their circles. They can, they have a voice, um, but but we don't have that embedded into this dominant culture. And I think that's really going to shift after this, because I think that the domain of like CNN and there's this big voice of authority is is like shot its ethos, and it's and it's not really going to be effective. There's just going to be a different way that things are communicated and truth is circulated if it's going to be effective. So, so you're saying multiple fun. truths, like every, there, there's so much primary data, basically you're saying is that videos and footage and uh, firsthand experience that there are going to be multiple. Is that what you're saying, Liz? Kind of, but months? then there might be, there might be like an, from that, there might be like an authentic leadership that will come about, you know, like, like we started to like Vinay Prasad, for example, all of a sudden he's become, he's like everywhere. I don't know how, if he sleeps, you know, <laughs> he's become almost the like someone that I look to um, to help me think, you know, I think he's being authentic. I think he really cares. And that is going to resonate and that's going to be persuasive. You know, a CDC infograph that everybody knows is not really the truth is just not going to do the trick. So, so we're at a crossroads. Right. That's an interesting point. I'd be curious to know what you think about that, Lelia. When I first got active on Twitter a year ago, I chose to listen to people first and then clicked on follow because I knew that whoever I picked first, uh, the algorithms would end up feeding other people for me to see based on who I had chosen to follow. So I really wanted to spend time getting to know them and their thoughts um, via this podcast format because I just don't have the time to read everything. Um, I, that's dramatically different uh, way of processing information now than it was for me previously. I was never a, a podcast listener before. Um, what are your thoughts, Lily, about language written versus verbal and um, how we discover truth? Wow, that's a big question. So I will say, I mean, I'm also a big podcast fan because I'm a big runner and walker. And so it's yeah. a good way for me to consume information. And I also do kind of like the long format because I think in a long format, you will get beyond talking points and beyond little sound bites. You'll actually get into someone's real beliefs. Um, so I think I really appreciate the long format of it. And also sometimes the unfiltered nature of it. I know that kind of gets people into trouble. Like I know Joe Rogan's podcast has been criticized for the fact that it's not fact-checked the way a news article is. And I, I understand where that criticism comes from. But I also think the long format of it is part of the, both the pro and the con. It's right. hard to right. fact-check something so long form, but also because it's not just these sound bites, it's also much more, feels more authentic to people. Um, yeah, I think what I would say also is the, the way the COVID conversation has played out online has been really interesting to me because it feels like certain positions have been staked out as the moral high ground. And then it's very hard to like adopt a position that doesn't have any moral high ground 
Um, and so for a while, it seems like kind of, oh, we have to shut everything down. Otherwise, you know, otherwise it's because you don't care if people die or something like that. That seemed to be kind of the, the discourse. And it was very hard to present the opinion that actually maybe we shouldn't shut everything down because there are cons to that because the moral high ground had claimed the idea that no, shutting things down is good. And if you don't wanna do that, it's because you don't care. Whereas now I think finally it's starting to shift a little bit to say, no, actually maybe wanting kids to be in school has its own type of high ground and its own type of pros as well. And so then now I think it's starting to get a bit more nuanced, but I think in the early days of kind of um, panic and emotion, it seemed like certain positions got staked out as the high ground in ways that then had this kind of like silencing effect. But then I think that also kind of caused those people to be somewhat frustrated if they felt like they weren't able to voice those opinions without being kind of lumped in with like QAnon Trump supporters or whatever. Um, I know I experienced that myself. Yeah, I, th I think the idea of unfiltered, but the, that unfiltered is becoming attractive. And this whole idea of podcasts taking over and listening and spending all that time listening to people talk I mean, maybe they had something to do with the isolation that we're experiencing. I did you appreciate know? hearing voices, actual voices. Yeah, yeah sure. right. And, and, but I think that idea of authenticity and unfiltered vis-a-vis um, -vis this culture of being silenced um, is, is really this interesting. Oh, that's interesting. Right. Yeah. I hadn't and, thought and, about that. You know what I find strange though about listening to podcasts is, uh, and you too would understand this, I am in such a, a consumptive mode of absorbing information that my ability to speak <laughs> has been limited. Um, I, I actually believe that's a real thing because I can understand Japanese quite well. I can understand 90% of, uh, you know, very fast talking uh, Izakaya style, uh, you know, pub style uh, podcaster. I just love him. He goes upstairs at like 11 o'clock at night, drinks a whiskey and just starts talking about nothing. He's fantastic. I love him in Japanese. So um, it's just very like casual, normal Japanese. Um, he can talk about water and it's funny. But at the same time, when you, when you learn a new language, your output is different. So you can be comfortable hearing, but you can't speak as well. Um, and that's a very common phenomenon. But I do, I do kind of wonder about this, you know, obsession with podcasts and my ability to actually be a science communicator. I think it's, <laughs> I think I need to work on that a bit. The output is, is suffering. I think that's the time that we're in. Cause I, I think I've been consuming a lot of media and I think it's part of this, what we've been talking about is trying to figure out when the story is going to end, you know, like tell me, so I'm sort of looking at the energy. I don't know if you heard about what's happening in Illinois, huge mess. No, all these, please tell me. Uh, so the, the, they, they lifted this mask mandate. I think there was a lawsuit and the judge said no more. Masks about that. But then some school districts were continuing on with their mask mandates. And so it's just an utter mess. And parents are very frustrated because some schools are just lifting the mask. And so, you know, I think that that it's just showing, you know, this lack of leadership, the lack of a story is creating chaos. Mm. So I think basically just the citizenry, the voices, the energy, the collective energy is saying, make a story, make a decision. Right. And I do so struggle that, with that. So that I'm just studying this and just predicting almost to the date upon which there's going to be some kind of, so leadership is sort of becoming back. It's always coming from the people. Um, and then I think that the people who are able to make those decisions have got to have to come up with a, a story themselves. They've got to bring in the science. Well, the thing that bothers me and, and, and about that, about this emergent sort of uh, grassroots organic, you know, emergence of leadership is that 
Um, it, it's uh, one's risk tolerance is not entirely isolated from just personality and you know genetics. I think you're forced to accept certain risks depending on your um, your socioeconomic situation. Um, like certain people have had to live in the real world the entire time. Um, and then other people have not had to. And, you know, that's that's a theme that we've heard, um, you know, from Vinay and uh, others that we greatly respect because this differential experience really informs uh, policy development. And that's, that's unfortunate. Um, you know, in our hockey communities, we see that these are fairly risk tolerant people for the most part. They wouldn't let their kids play hockey if they were risk averse. I'm an epidemiologist instead of a doctor for a lot of reasons. I'm not smart enough to be a doctor, but I also did not want to be in you know, close proximity to germs. Um, I like to use my computer and, uh, and to study data and to understand populations and how the data moves and what I can do to better help more people. But we all have various risk tolerances that are informed and, and uh, defined by our personal lived experience on the planet. And uh, I think those who have the most power are most risk averse. And I think that's that's a real problem because we are not uh, we're further we're creating crevasses, vast crevasses um, in opportunity for children based on um, risk tolerance. And I, I really believe that we are doing great harms to many, many children who really need to be in school um, and need to have every barrier to understanding and, and development taken away and back to the input output thing. You know, I, I have a lot of mixed thoughts on masks. I do think they're only minimally effective, truly, the way children actually wear them, um, in particular cloth masks and in a classroom where they're actually really not six feet apart. But I do also wonder about what kind of unmeasured barriers are there to communication because the children are wearing a mask? If, if it's hard to understand a young child because they have a mask on because it's a little bit muffled, is the teacher less likely to engage and ask them questions? Just because when you wait for a response or you don't understand a response, or you're working hard to ask three times to a student, like I didn't quite hear you, you lose the rest of the class, chaos starts ensuing in the back of the room, there's mischief going on, you know, it's so I, I do just really wonder, I'm not a teacher, I'm not in the classroom, it's been hard to get into actual schools, but I have more than 500 hours of classroom volunteer experience with my own kids. And I can really appreciate the challenges of teaching um, with masks on for, uh, anyway, that was a long tangent, sorry about that, but. Well, I can definitely jump in and say as an educator, one thing that I think people should think about a lot when they think about masks in the classroom is uh, what is the effect of the instructor policing the masking of the children, right. students? Um, so I, I have never policed masking of my students, um, especially because that masks are not required, but even last, even spring 2021, I didn't police masks. Um, but I think that like the classroom environment is so important and so kind of fragile and the relationship between the instructor and the mm -hmm. students and the vibe between them cannot be antagonistic in my opinion. And then if the instructor is policing student masking, that does create antagonism. And that I think can be very destructive. And so that's another cost that I think people might not be fully considering. I'm totally yeah. right. That's a great point because um, that the the concept of uh, resources before restrictions that we talked about from mm -hmm. Stefan Barai, I brought that up with someone we were talking about this exact point about my mask, is it a resource or is it a restriction? Well, if, if a, a teacher is distracted and having to police it, I feel like that is a, a restriction from an educator's point of view. 
you know, and, and not, not everybody is class management, everyone has, you know, differing uh, tolerance for, you know, how controlled their classroom is. But yeah, and then that, that is creates a, a strange atmosphere. Then if the student ends up going to the principal's office and there's another layer where that principal has to be in that role, whether being the nurturer, being the enforcer. So I, I agreed. And, and that's a cultural cost that really wasn't discussed. And you both, uh, given your work, I mean, I know linguistics, we didn't get into this, uh, Lelia, and we might have to do a follow-on conversation about this, but I know that it's highly technical, actually, um, right? I mean, it, there's there's a quantitative nature to what you do, I believe, from what little I know about it. But um, I think that those of us in epidemiology and in public health as well, setting goals and metrics, we really crave things that are measurable. Um, but I, I spend a good deal of my time uh, in intuition. Um, I really believe that there's a lot to be, like I, we started the conversation with read between the lines. Um, there's a great great amount of information that um, is difficult to measure, but it's you can sense it. Um, and I, I think that those of us in my line of work really struggle with that. And I can appreciate that. I would much prefer be, a, being able to measure these dynamics in the classroom and be able to quantify here are the losses, here are the things that are impeding learning. Um, but I think uh, we're at a point where probably common sense should prevail a little bit, um, and we need to bring the teacher's voice to the fore. Um, I can say that I, I've not really heard teachers um, speaking, like real teachers speaking as much as I would like, and I've spent uh, some time over the last week engaging in long conversations at the hockey rink with friends of mine who are actual teachers and are, and are struggling um, to bring the children uh, back up to speed and uh, to overcome the, this one teacher doesn't even like calling it learning losses because she's concerned that they were actually behind from the beginning, um, especially the, the students who are from uh, high social vulnerability areas. So um, it's just, it's something that is a, a great concern, I think, as far as education should be the thing that, we're, that brings us all together, um, even if we can't measure the losses we should be able to appreciate that our children are not actually thriving. I, I think that we can sense that in many ways, and that should be enough. Why do we have to measure the, the, the lacks um, before we make some changes? Uh, so I know I'm contradicting myself a bit because I, I appreciate quantitative um, outcomes, baseline follow-up, uh, you know, go back and revisit um, and then and further tweak the intervention. But I think that there is qualitative. And I know you all in the humanities appreciate the qualitative as well as the quantitative. And that's, that's why I really like talking to you. And you know, it's there, even if you can't exactly measure it, you pick up themes, um, and you pick up atmospherics. So in, uh, in closing, because I have to go pick somebody up. Um, I just wanted to give you all a chance to, you know, just tie up any loose ends that resonated with you during this conversation and uh, anything you would like to pursue further. Um, or, or things that you uh, look forward to seeing on Twitter today when you go back and, and check out what's happening. Let's start with you, Lelia. Oh, well, thank you, Allison. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. So I, I really do love the theme of kind of just hearing educators' perspectives. And I, I wanna acknowledge that, I mean, I think like Alice, I mean, sorry, um, Liz and I are both educators, but I think we have what seems to me to be a bit of a minority view among educators. So I would be really interested in kind of hearing like the views of a lot of different educators and kind of just thinking about like why different educators have come to such different takes on this. 
because it's been also a weird experience for me to feel suddenly so much like a minority when I never felt like any sort of minority, especially not a political minority among colleagues until COVID. So um, I'd be really interested in kind of digging deeper into that, but I am really grateful for this conversation. It's been really wonderful to talk to both of you. So thank you again. That's interesting. What's your, what's, what do you feel is minority about your view? Sorry, Liz. Oh, well, I mean, I just am the only educator that I really know other than I guess Liz and a few others um, who actually thinks that maybe we have overreacted to COVID in certain ways. Maybe we underreacted in other ways in terms of maybe we didn't provide enough resources to like at-risk elderly people, but the response in schools, in my opinion, has been a bit of an overreaction and has had quite a lot of costs, but I am very much in the minority in holding that view as far as I can tell, at least among people who come out and say it. Quietly, I actually get a fair number of direct messages from people who do agree with me, although even they are still kind of a minority. But it is very interesting. So it's unclear, like what what do actual educators think? What do the loud educators on Twitter think? Um, what does yeah? It, it's very it's a very interesting topic. Yeah, I definitely am in the minority, and again, that is why I spend a lot of time consuming the opinions of people who I respect and I think are smart who who share my views. So just checking myself, you know, checking my my mirror, um, and then. The intuition versus data, I think that's a little bit where I got to this place because I'm really in, like intuition is my first thing. And my intuition about, about the overreaction was very strong. So I, I reacted, I said, right. something's not right here. This is not the way that you do public health. And then I started studying and learning all about immunology. I mean, I know way more about this than I probably should have spent more time studying my field. So maybe I could do something with it, you know? So I learned a lot about the science, but so I think the intuition can feed our questions and then maybe we can get to better solutions because we use our intuition, like going back to that authenticity and, and maybe the, the intuition and the feelings and the emotions and what's ethical and what's right wasn't baked into these policies in the first place. Right, that's such a good point. Um, I agree about the role of intuition prompting questions and uh, I tend to be a tremendous self-doubt also drives me to research because I don't really believe myself. Um, I don't feel that I have enough knowledge and innate knowledge and uh, there are so many incredible minds out there. So um, I actually meant to start our entire conversation with what are our biases? I think that's something that would be very interesting to register in a research research study when you go to um, publish a manuscript. I actually think it would be quite interesting for each of the authors to say, here's my bias. Here's where I'm coming from with this. So the peer reviewers could actually say, oh, interesting. That was their lens. That was the, you know, their, their background sort of um, premonition about what they would wonder about and why their, their questions are being framed this way, and then be able to review the, the study and the methods with that in mind. Um, so I think that would be very interesting to consider um, the role of bias in, uh, in research and allow us to, just like funding sources, it would be part of the disclosures. Um, and that would really help me understand. And then I could go and research papers written by people who have a different fundamental bias than I do, because I really want to be sure that I'm reading all sides of an issue um, and, and not just working with confirmation bias. That's one of the things that bothers me about muting people is you're not seeing people who disagree with you. Um, it makes for a much more pleasurable experience on Twitter. And I've been encouraged many, many times, stop listening to this person, but I just cannot do that. I think that that, that uh, is a liability um, because then, like, like I opened the conversation with, I would not have appreciated a blind spot that I had. And those blind spots are really important to developing a full understanding and appreciation of um, a problem. So anyway, 
Um, I think next time, uh, maybe we can talk about biases and um, it's just how that informs research, perhaps, um, perhaps even in your field and come back to um, rhetoric. I know that we didn't really get to touch on that too much and how we can perhaps write better in public health. Um, what could we do? Maybe we can pick some messages that alienate you. Like maybe you read a public health message and you respond in a way that's quite negative and then try rewriting it um, and see what might've worked better. Um, I would be fascinated um, with that. I love that idea. Thank you again. Great to thank great. you. Thank you Bye. both so much. I really appreciate your time and uh, I will talk to you again, hopefully soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.